The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. How's everybody doing today? Awesome. You guys ready to get in the Word? Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up in the air and wave it around as if you had no concern. And uh, someone will make sure that you get one. If you do not own a Bible, then we'll make sure that that is your Bible. That is a gift to you. We pray that God would use that to teach you more and more about himself, his goodness, his grace, and his redemptive plan for our life and our world. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We'll be starting in verse 15. And as you turn there, I'm going to ask the Lord to bless our time and to, uh, to grace me um, as we teach. <clears throat> God, we bow before you this morning because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the almighty creator. Nothing that we desire compares to you. You are of infinite value. Your goodness and grace is unending. Your wisdom is unsearchable. Lord, you are so much bigger, so much more vast, so much more powerful than we can even imagine. And so, Lord, it is fitting that we would be bowed before you. God, we repent of times when, when we seek to place ourselves above you. How foolish. And Lord, right now we gather here, Lord, and pray that your spirit would have its way, that you would move through this place and teach, Lord. That though we have this sin nature we wrestle with and we, we constantly try to put ourselves back on the throne, Lord, this morning we're here to remember who you are and who we are. But Lord, we do this willingly because we know you are not some dictator, but you are our friend our Savior, our God, our Heavenly Father. So it's with joy, Lord, that we sit before you this morning and ask that you would have your way with us, that your will would be done in heritage as it is in heaven, and that your Spirit would be our teacher this morning. So God, I ask for a special measure of your grace, Lord, as the one charged with bringing these words to bear this morning. Lord, may you, may you just grace me by your Spirit with the ability to represent your heart and your will to your people. And may all attention and glory go to you. So, Lord, we pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, Josh, just real quick, is that me or is that something else? Making that noise? I'm in, man. It's not me. That was God censoring me. That's what that is. It's like a beep when someone cusses. He's like doing that to make sure that I don't say anything foolish. That is me. I think we got it now. I got it. I got it. I'm confident. I got it. <laughs> okay, you're right there. You're on standby. I found the problem. I have addressed it. I think we're good. 
So Ephesians chapter five is where we're gonna be. We're gonna be starting in verse 15. Let's just read through it so we understand the whole flow and then we're gonna break it down a little bit. So starting in verse 15, it says this, that look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." In this world, we actually uh, have a phrase that gets used a lot that we encourage and we actually like. It's, a, it's almost become a value now for our culture, and that's being genuine, being real, being authentic. One of the compliments I actually receive more than anything with regards to my teaching is they'll say to me, people, you have often said to me, I just love how you're just real, you're, you're transparent, you're authentic with the things that you say up on stage. And Paul here is encouraging the same thing, but a little bit different. The, the problem with a lot of times when we say, Let's just, I'm just being real, is we use that as a mask to say things about us that are oftentimes maybe not in keeping with where we should be. Sometimes being real is just like, hey, I'm just being real, but the behavior you're describing is like real bad. <laughs> I'm just being real though. Hey, it's, it's like when someone says, hey, um, I'm not racist, but then you know they're about to say something racist right after that, right? I'm not racist, but, and then they say something horrible. But a lot of times when people say, I'm just being real, what they end up talking about is they're kind of validating almost a way of living that might be substandard in some ways. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing, he's saying, hey, be real with accordance to who you are. Be genuine. As a Christian, you have an identity. It's not that we aspire to an identity. You have one. Paul would say, this is who you are. You are the elect of God. You are saved by his grace. You have been adopted into his family. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God is your heavenly father. You have been saved by the blood of Christ. You have inherent value and dignity and position because of who you are in Christ. So because of that, be genuine. Be that. Live that out. Don't live as one, as, he would, as the book of James says, a double-minded man. Someone who says one thing, lives another way, and he's unstable in general. And Paul is saying to the people of Ephesians and to us in our own culture, hey, be genuine, be real. This is what it looks like. And we've said this a million times, but it bears repeating every time. It's not be real so that you be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying pretend enough until it's real. What he's saying is, no, you are a Christian if you've put your faith in Christ. He has saved you and rescued you. He's brought you, and the analogy he keeps using is out of darkness and into light. The old man is taken away. You are now a new man, so be real. Be genuine. Live out what you actually are. And this is what Paul's teaching on. And now Paul's going to start to talk a lot about wisdom. The, the subject sentence of really this whole passage goes back to Ephesians 4, 1. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. 
He's saying, you've been saved. You've been called by God. Now I'm urging you, walk in that way. Look like you are. Does that make sense? You have an identity. Let that be your identity. Let others identify you as that. Live out who you actually are. This is what Paul is calling us to do. And so now Paul is going to kind of turn the corner a little bit here in chapter five and throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians and get a little more specific. He's gonna start to press down on specific issues and specific areas of life in how we are to live. And this would be referred to when we're talking about here's how God desires we live in a specific situation. There's a word for that. It's called wisdom. Living or walking in wisdom means we understand what God has for us in a specific situation and in specific areas of life. And so we desire to walk in wisdom. And you're going to hear him refer to this, wise and unwise. This is what Paul is talking about. So it's wisdom. And so I've been talking about this even lately, and and I want to encourage you guys on this. Like We should, as Christians, I'm just going to say it. You should come to church with a pen and paper expecting to hear something from God that you might want to write down. Because God is a God of wisdom who practically speaks into our life in such a way that it benefits us, aids us, and leads us as we go through life. And so I want to encourage you, if you are not a note taker yet, man, be one. And and not because Jeff has wisdom and he's going to say something you should write down. Probably not. I've already been censored by the Lord already this morning, right? That's not the case. But God's word might. And there's going to be things that are going to be said that I think you're going to want to write down. And there's even studies about how the retention level of things goes up dramatically when you actually write them down. Or whether you're using your iPad, type it, that's fine. Whatever you want to do. Some of you text faster than you can write. So do that. But... We're talking about wisdom. This this is, the Bible talks about we should desire wisdom and we should look at it as like gold. This is something of value. So when we come to these things, man, don't just sit back, but like press in and understand God is handing to us this morning things of immeasurable value that are beneficial to our life practically. We're not just talking vague theology on a big picture here. We're talking press down like this is gonna help me today. And so Paul begins to talk about this and he starts in verse 15 and he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't walk as someone who is unwise. Now he says this, now look carefully. And this is what I'm getting at. Here's, there's an urgency in what he says. When he says, look carefully, it means precisely, accurately, with close attention, But there's also a sense in the wordage that he uses here that implies also urgency. He's saying, hey, listen, listen. Be careful how you walk. Think about how you live. When things come your way, be intentional. Stop, don't don't walk in a way that the unwise people do. What does that mean to be wise or unwise? Well, let's talk about that for just a second. Wisdom, biblically speaking, and specifically in the Pauline letters, when Paul writes and speaks about wisdom, and especially here in Ephesians, he's already used wisdom language already throughout the text in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, chapter 1, verse 17 and 19, chapter 3, verse 10. And every time that Paul speaks about wisdom, he's not speaking about wisdom in general, like a really smart guy that knows a lot of stuff. What he's talking about, godly wisdom, he's talking about 
the overall plan of God. That God has revealed to us the wisdom of his will, the mystery of his will. He's revealed to us what he's doing. So what is God doing? It's the gospel. Man has fallen. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. But God in his infinite mercy sees our problem, sent his son to live this perfect, sinless life. To go to the cross on our behalf where the weight of sin and guilt and shame that we committed was put on the shoulders of Christ. That Christ died, was resurrected, has ascended into heaven, and that those who put their faith in him have been changed, reborn, and adopted into the family of God. And that not only that, but that God has a plan overall, that he's doing something. First, he's restoring the world, and second, he's changing us. He's, he's forming and crafting a people after his will, a people that look like Jesus more and more every day. There's this plan. This is the wisdom of God. It is the plan of God. And Paul's saying, listen, when you go through life, be careful, be intentional, be precise, and don't walk as someone who has no idea what God's actually doing. You've been given the wisdom of God, the mystery of his will. You know what God's up to. So don't walk through life as if you don't know these things. Think about it. Think about what God's doing. Think about your role in it because you're part of the kingdom of God. So how does this work? Think about these things. The unwise are people who are completely ignorant of what God's plan is. They give no thought to what God is doing in the world or in them. And they can just go through life without any care. But he's saying, hey, believer, listen, stop and think. Be aware. Understand your life has meaning. And life in general has meaning. There's something going on in the world bigger than us. So walk in a way that you understand this and in accordance with this plan. And he says in verse 16, and this is speaking of the urgency of it, he says, making use, or excuse me, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now there's two thoughts here. Number one, we are to make use of the time that we have. I mean, Time is short. And, you know, we don't really understand that until we're out of it. Have you noticed that? Like, we don't realize how valuable time is till we don't have any. Amen? It's true. When you think you have three hours to be somewhere, you're not counting the minutes, are you? You're just kind of hanging back, doing nothing. But when you look at the watch and go, oh, no, I got to be there in five minutes, suddenly time changes and you'd kill for an extra five, wouldn't you? Time becomes way more valuable when you're running out of it. I'm 43 years old right now. Tomorrow I'm gonna wake up and I'll be 60. <laughs> True? Now here's the thing. Young people don't believe me. Anyone who's 60 and above right now, am I speaking truth? I'm, it's true. There's something about, it's as if time just excel. It's kind of like fuel in our car. You know how like when you have a full tank of gas, it takes forever for that needle to move off full, doesn't it? It just seems like you get better gas mileage. I think they've done studies that say you do get better mileage out of a full tank. But once you get down to the end, man, it starts dropping fast, doesn't it? The same is true with time. And, and more than that, though, time is a gift from God. Time is a common grace. We'll talk more about those in a few minutes. But time is a gift God has blessed us with time. Christ is holding all of time still together. It is by the grace of God that we have every day that we have. And even more than that, time is something that we will be accountable for before God one day. Our time matters. 
And we might think about how we spend our money or at least emphasize it, but I don't think we give the same uh, emphasis on the fact that time is a valued commodity that is a gift from God that is to be stewarded. And Paul's saying, listen, you need, to, you need to understand, make the best use of time. But he also tells us, not just, not just make the best use of your time, but how to make the best use of your time in this specific phrase. It's kind of hidden in the meaning, but it's there. He doesn't just say, hey, time's short, so do everything you can now because YOLO. You only live once, so go for it, man. Go skydiving, go do whatever you want because one day you're gonna be old and you won't be able to snowboard anymore, so go do it now while you can. That's not what he's actually saying. Though we should take advantage of the things that God gives us for sure, but that's not the emphasis. When Paul says making the best use of time, in the original language there, the phrase making the best use of time doesn't just translate as with regards to like stewarding or anything like that. What it also means is redeeming redeeming time. Why? Because the days are evil. So now here's what you got to do. You got to step back to understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying, don't walk as if you're unwise, like you don't know what God's doing. Walk as someone who's wise, who understands the big picture of everything that God's doing, that God is redeeming the earth. He's redeeming sinners. He's got a plan and you make use of your time, redeem your time, buy back, if you will, your time in accordance with that plan. What it, what it means is this, knowing that someone outside the church who doesn't have Christ in their life is dying should affect the way we decide, decide to use our time. Understanding what's valuable and what matters because God has an, a great plan. Understanding the importance of riches versus the kingdom of God or even why you've been given wealth and riches and things like that in accordance to God's plan. Understand you are part of God's plan now. You now are actively part of the redemption plan. God calls us what? Ministers of what? Reconciliation. And so he's saying, listen, you live in a fallen, sinful world. And I'll guarantee you this. The, world, the Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And to a large degree, he's in control over things that are going on on the earth. Under the sovereign will of God, for sure. But he's the God of this earth right now, right? I, tr I promise you this. While we may not always make best use of time, while we might be lazy here or squander time there or waste time there, Satan never does. The Bible says he's a roaring lion. He's prowling around constantly seeking who he might destroy. He is absolutely making best use of time. Why? Because he absolutely knows time is short. And there's a sense in which that's the way we need to be. Oh, maybe not looking for someone that we destroy for sure, but understanding like, hey, time is short. Christian, Satan's on the prowl. So be wise. Understand who he is. Understand who God is. Understand who you are and live accordingly. Understand this. Redeem your time for the days are evil. Not just YOLO, but understand what God is doing. And take advantage of the time that God has gifted you. And so he says, in light of that, verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now again, uh, we're going to go back to what we've already mentioned. In, in the book of Proverbs, there's lots um, that the word teaches us about the fool. 
There's a specific person that's referred to as the fool. Now, we use fool as just a general insult, like you're an idiot, you're a fool, you bunch of fools, that kind of stuff. But in the Bible, the fool is a specific person. And it's not just that they're an idiot, it's that they're ignorant. And there's a difference. An idiot or someone that doesn't care or whatever, someone can be riotous or rebellious or just be stupid in general, but, but someone who is ignorant means that there's an understanding they don't have or they're not aware of or they're not living in the light of. And so in the, in the Bible, the Proverbs tells us that the fool is careless, just, just doesn't take caution, where Paul just told us, hey, Take caution, be careful, be intentional. The, the, the fool's careless. He doesn't really have some general thing that's guiding sort of his thought. He lacks understanding. There's something about life that he doesn't know. He despises wisdom and he lives accordingly. And finally, he's impetuous. A fool is impetuous. They'll make a decision here, make a decision here, but not without any real, like there's no real filter of wisdom that a fool uses to make decisions. And you go, what do you mean wisdom? I don't uh, bird. <laughs> Weird, sorry. <laughs> it's like squirrel. I don't know. <laughs> ADD kid. Anyway, um, so this is what I mean by that. Like you can say, wait, of, of, I know people who the Bible would call unbelievers and maybe refer to as fools, but they do seem to live with some sort of wisdom. Like they're smart people that they know stuff. And that's true, right? We know unbelievers all over the place that are brilliant, correct? And successful by the world standards, Correct. But if you go back to what Paul's talking about when he's referring to wisdom, he's saying, listen, the fool does not use the wisdom, the understanding of the overall plan of God and what God's doing as they make their decisions. So a fool can spend money any way he wants. He doesn't have to think about what the kingdom of God or or what God's doing. A, A fool can go anywhere he wants. He doesn't have to worry about, man, the Holy Spirit's in me and convicting me. A fool can do anything he wants. He doesn't have to think about, man, is, is Jesus on the throne? Is God redeeming anything? A, a fool doesn't have to use the understanding of the overarching plan of God, the kingdom of God, as the filter by which they make their decisions. And so they are impetuous. They can do any of those things. And what Paul is telling us here and in the previous verses, he's saying, hey, don't be like that. You have an understanding. You know the gospel. You know what God is doing. You know that Christ is coming back. You know that in eternity you're going to be with him forever. You know that this place is wasting away and you know that this place is fallen. So think about that. Don't be impetuous. Think about it. Don't be wasteful with your time because you understand how little you have. Don't be wasteful with your money. You know this world is wasting away. You know you can't buy joy. You know the things that you buy aren't going to last forever. So be wise understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some thing that gets us into the church and then no longer applies. What he's saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the lens by which you view everything in your life now and forever. And our decisions change. This is what Paul tells us that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have a new filter. The understanding of who God is and what God's doing changes us so we don't live carelessly anymore. We care. And I don't mean care for people specifically, though we do. We care in general because we are now part of a plan. Life's going somewhere. We understand, like we talked about last week, what we do matters. And so there's a new filter by which we look through. And he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Now, this is one of those that we in our Western culture tend to personalize. So, so if you talk to most people in the Western church and you talk about the will of the Lord, it becomes kind of personal guidance. What's the will of the Lord for my life? What's the will of the Lord for your life? You heard people say that, and that, that's good, right? Because we do have specific callings in different areas for sure. Um, and so for me, there was a time when as an engineer, God put a specific calling on my life to move into ministry. And I had to understand, discover what God's will is, and then kind of... Um, well, really just submit to that and pursue that in my life. So that's true. But when Paul writes about the will of God in all of Paul's writing, he's never talking about just personalized, personal guidance. In fact, none of the letters are written as individual application anyway. They're written to groups. And when he talks about the will of the Lord, he's not talking about some specific plan that we have to discover. Because earlier in Ephesians, again, and I know we're hammering this, but it's important. Earlier in Ephesians, he has already made known to us the mystery of what? Of his will. So the understanding is this. Don't be foolish. Know God's will. Like you need to understand what God is doing in the world around you. And that should be the filter by which we actually go and live. We make decisions understanding the gospel. We make choices understanding what God is doing. And that needs to come into play. And he said to make decisions without regard to the gospel, without understanding of what God's doing around us, without understanding of our identity and our role in that, he says is foolish. It's like the person who has no understanding of any of these things. That's a huge umbrella to put over everything that we do. It means Christians live with intentionality. It means when you write a budget, there should be a plan for how is that budget going to glorify God. And that's the pot calling the kettle because I'm an unorganized guy. We have no budget. We just figure it out. But that's wrong. Like I sh that shouldn't be. My wife's going, yes, I know it shouldn't be. It's we're like we should have a budget. We should have a plan. My job, your job, any of our jobs, we should look at that in the light of the gospel and go, okay, this is where God has me, but I know what God's overall plan is. So how does my operation within this job, how do I wield this authority or how do I submit to these leaders or whatever the case may be, how do I navigate that in light of what God's will is for us? And, and if you want to be specific about personal will, I can give you one element of what God's personal will is for you um, that is inarguable. And it makes things a lot easier if you really want to push down on it. God's will for you is this. He's changing you to be like Christ. So whatever you're doing, always there should be some understanding that in this situation, God is trying to change me to be more and more like Jesus there should be an understanding of this is what God's doing globally. This is what God's doing in our community. This is what God's doing in all of redemptive history. And then the important thing comes, not just understanding that, but when Paul talks about these things, when he says, but understand, there's also an emphasis on uh, now appropriate that. Like, don't just know the gospel and say, I'm good, now I'll go make choices. But in light of that, how do I apply the gospel into each of these situations in life? That's why it's so disturbing, or it should be, if we don't have the ability to stand and say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and actually say that. Like, if we don't really know, it, if your answer to what is the gospel is like, well, I mean, uh, 
Jesus died for our sins and uh, I prayed a prayer so I'm good. Like if, that, if that's your understanding of the gospel, then you not only don't understand the gospel, but you've handicapped yourself from the lens that God intends to guide us and to provide wisdom for us in everything that we do. You have to know the gospel. For so long, the church has had it backwards and has preached the gospel as the tag at the end of a sermon so that people can come get saved. And then living after that becomes just this list of morals, like do this, do this, we'll preach on this. By the way, if you don't know Jesus, come forward. That's not the way it was intended to be. The Bible was intended to present the gospel to us in such a way that it becomes the filter by which we navigate all of these things. The gospel, like, think about it. If we only preach the gospel to unbelievers, then why does Paul write about it so much to the church when he's constantly telling them that they're saved and they're the saints? And then he preaches the gospel to them. Why? They don't need it. They're already saved. But it's because he's reminding them and reminding us over and over and over, this is why you live and this is how you live. The gospel doesn't just save us, it sustains us, it guides us, it leads us. So he's constantly saying to the Christian, know the gospel, understand the gospel, and more specifically, appropriate the gospel to your life. And this is why you have to be able to know this and be able to say this on your own. Because when you come into a situation in life that's difficult, if you don't have the ability to preach the gospel to yourself, you have no ability then to make a choice with wisdom. Because how, how are you going to do that? The filter by which God's given you to navigate those situations is missing now. So if you don't know that, you need to grab an elder. You need to grab me. You need to grab a pastor. You need to grab a book, good book. Let us tell you which one if you need to. But listen, know the gospel. Be able to, in a paragraph, it's, it's, it's really easy. We, we, we used the grid last week. We should, I should have got a graphic to do it again. But if you're writing notes, please just write it down. It is fall or excuse me, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You can tell the entire gospel using those four words. God has created us. We have fallen and rebelled against him, but God has redeemed us and restored us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then God is restoring all things and Christ will one day come again. That's, see, that part becomes really important to a gospel definition if you're preaching that to yourself because you gotta understand what God's doing overall if you're gonna know what to do with your money. You gotta know what God's doing overall if you're gonna know how to navigate relationships or how to lead your job if you're going to do it in wisdom. So church, if there's anything you remember out of anything I'm gonna say today, you must know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really important. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Please get a hold of a pastor if you're fuzzy on that. If there's, if there's anything we should be clear on as Christians, it's that. We will fight six-day creation. We will fight eschatology. And so many times the same people that are fighting those things get fuzzy on their gospel definition. That is the wrong emphasis. Eschatology, when Jesus comes, he'll be here when he gets here. But if you don't know the gospel, it won't matter. It's important. I'm a little fired up right now, right? It's the cold medicine. I'm sorry. I'm still coughing. So this is what Paul says. Now, now Paul's going to make this turn. And so now Paul's going to get a little bit specific here. 
And he's going to carry this through really through the end of Ephesians. And he says, it's a really interesting place for Paul to jump to right out the bat. He says this in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. That's an interesting thing to jump to as he's beginning to get specific here. But it's not just by chance. It's not just like, oh, by the way, I want to talk to you. Don't get drunk. And there's a plan. There's something he's doing here. The, the, the Lord has given all of us many what's referred to as common graces. A common grace is a grace that whether you believe in God or not, God is just generally good and has blessed all humans with some of these things. So an example might be nature. The ability to, to take in a crater lake or a rogue river or some of those things, not the town so much, but the river itself, and to be able to say, look how beautiful this is, and to un, just enjoy the beauty of the creation. An unbeliever and a believer can float down the rogue river and both be blessed and enjoy that time together, because that's a common grace. Um, another one of these would be medicines or, or the, the intellect in humanity to make them. Medicine wasn't just given to Christians. Medicine was given to all. We, we are blessed with medicines, both natural and man-made, to be able to, that's a grace that we have those things. Another one would be food. You ever think about that? Like God didn't have to make food taste good. You ever look at your dog that eats the same food over and over and over and over and feel guilty? Like, can you imagine what that would be like? Now, when I was a kid, I longed for that because I was a picky eater. I was like, I I literally thought this once as a kid. I'll show you how messed up I am. I literally thought at one point, what would be awesome is if God gave us a zipper on our stomach so that peas and things that I don't like, I could just zip, dump it in there and zip it right up. And then I didn't have to taste it. Weird kid, weird kid. Weirder adult, but weird kid. But food tastes good. There is a grace in the foods that God has given us. The Bible tells us these foods are a gift from God and they're meant to be enjoyed. That's why they're talked about in reference to celebrations and feasts, that the food is good, amen? Um, And another one that the Bible actually specifically talks about that becomes very controversial is wine. The Bible says that wine is a common grace. Listen to Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Now, before keep your seatbelts on. I'm going somewhere with this. Um, Joel 3.18 speaks about the end days when Christ returns and restores all things. And look how he describes it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. So wine is considered biblically one of the common graces like food that is given to people. But here's the problem. What we have a tendency to do is take a common grace that God has given us and make it the thing. And now we've polluted it. We take the thing that God has given us that is meant to point us to Christ. We are intended to float down the Rogue River, not just going, how great is the Rogue River, but to go, how great is the God that would give us such a grace as this? And so when we stop, then we're worshiping creation rather than creator. This happens in food. 
when you develop addictions, when food becomes the idol that you serve, when food becomes the thing that you go to for comfort other than Christ, instead of tasting a steak and savoring that and going, man, God is so gracious to do this for us that we could eat nutrients and, and be fed and that this tastes good. Instead, we carry it too far and then we pollute the images designed to point at and we really can do this, can we not, with alcohol. This is what happens. And at that point, it doesn't become a tool used to point people to God. It becomes, frankly, demonic. And if you talk with anyone who has dealt with addictions, whether drug or alcohol, you will hear stories that make you understand why there's such a close parallel with alcoholism and drug addiction and demonic activity in the Bible. It's real. Spend some time talking with some of these people. You'll understand. It's real. So we have this tendency to take something. I mean, in that same verse that I showed you, wine to gladden man's heart, it also says that bread is given to strengthen man. Bread is given to strengthen. Bread is good, right? I mean, I will take some warm French bread any day. How many of you have ever chosen to go to a restaurant specifically because they have good bread before you eat? Raise your hand, right? But what do we also know now? Man cannot live by bread alone. God had the Adkins thing down long before we did. But, but I, I, not joking, man, I mean this sincerely, the Bible is full of practical wisdom. That's why I say when we study the Bible, we should come with a pen to write something down, right? There's, the Bible's full of practical wisdom. And so we know now that to eat too much bread can be supremely unhealthy, correct? But Paul's not specifically picking wine here just to say this is what happens with alcohol. There's a specific parallel that Paul's making here. It's not an accident that Paul mentions wine because he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. There is a specific parallel that Paul's choosing to use right here. And we could go down a road. There's, there's some really interesting things if you really want to think through it. So for example, someone that's under the control of alcohol, they will gladly, willingly take on things that you know if you're sober, no way you're pulling that off, right? How many YouTube videos start with, hey, hold my beer while I do this, right? And they do stuff that's just foolish and doesn't make any sense. But someone who's under the control of the spirit How many times has the spirit of God led someone to do something that apart from the power of God would never succeed on its own? There's some interesting parallels. Even biblically speaking, speaking when people were filled with the spirit in the book of Acts, what is it that other people looked at them and said they were? These people are drunk. So there's a purposeful parallel here, but it's opposites. And so here's what happens. Uh, someone can stand up here and read a verse like wine makes glad a man's heart. And you'll have people on one end that are going, hey, yeah, so let's have some wine. And they'll end up using that as a reason to lead to debauchery. So let me clarify right now, as clear as I possibly can, he's making it really clear here that to be drunk is sin. Amen? Everybody say it with me. Sin. Being drunk is sin. The Bible here says, do not be drunk with wine. Why? He's paralleling this with the Spirit. And what's the fr- one of the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Someone who is drunk with wine loses the ability to control. Someone who is drunk loses control of their words. Someone who is drunk loses control of judgment. They lose control of wisdom. 
They lose control of the ability to hold thoughts in, the things that they say. They make choices they would never make under other circumstances. And if you push it far enough, instead of something that is intended to point us to the joy of God, they end up on a toilet bowl throwing up, showing anything but joy. That's a polluted image. And so Paul's saying, do not be under the control of wine. You are to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. You are to be controlled by something else. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says this. 1 Thessalonians 5, I think we have the text here. It says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So think about it. Think of the flow. Think of the context here. Paul's saying, hey, be careful. Live with wisdom. Know what God is doing. And then he's saying, and be sober-minded. Time is short. There's something actually going on. You don't have the time to just check out. And instead, you are to be in the control of the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to control your life, not some substance. People will go, what about marijuana or what about these different things? You are not to be controlled by anything, food, sex, any of those things. We as Christians are filled with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is the one that is to control and direct our lives. Amen? This is what a life as a Christian is meant to be. Anything other than this is sinful disobedience against God's will for us. That's really important to know. This is really important to know. And, and, and think about it. He even says, don't be drunk with wine, which for that is debauchery. That's a really actually a bad translation in the ESV. Some of your translations say, which will lead to debauchery. So think about it. How many things, sinful, dark things, have happened under alcohol from abuse of women, rape, sexual immorality, all sorts of things over here. He's saying, hey, don't be controlled by this. This is not going to lead you in wisdom. It is not going to lead you in God's plan. It is not going to lead to godly living. Instead, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And what do we know that the Holy Spirit does? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that the Holy Spirit is changing us and molding us from one degree of glory to other, molding us into the image of Christ. So don't be in control of something that is not going to lead to godly living, no matter what it is. But instead, be con under the control of the Holy Spirit that's going to lead you to godly living. If something you're doing isn't resulting in godly living, you're living wrong. Understand your identity, know who you are, and live this way. But he says, be controlled by the fruit of the Spirit. The problem is, and this is the amazing parallel to me that is so hard for me to understand. So many people will say, that's right, we need to live by the Spirit. And so the idea of being filled by the Spirit results in something that is completely lacking in anything that we would call self-control. We can see perversions of understanding regarding the Holy Spirit and what it means to be filled by the Spirit so that it's in such a way that people actually look silly and drunk and can justify it by going, well, that's what they said in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, they only said it because this language thing was going on. You can go read that on your own. 
But nowhere in the scriptures do you see the Holy Spirit come upon or fill anyone and they start acting like so many act under the guise of spirit-filled or spirit-led. In fact, I'll give you an example. You see people in some churches, they get filled by the Spirit. And they, brothers and sisters in Christ, you can be saved and be wrong on this, okay? So I'm not, I'm not trying to like divide us from, but it's important that you understand the differences here because there's so much confusion. But, but you can see people that their belief is that to be filled by the Spirit means you're instantly speaking in tongues, dancing around, acting all weird, not understanding anything that's going on. But when you look at the book of Acts, is that what you actually see? You could say, well, they're speaking in tongues. No, but they're speaking in specific languages. And I'll give you, you can go study this on your own. In the book of Acts, 10 different times, there are people, persons, or groups of people who are filled with, described as being filled with the Spirit. In every single case, you know what the first thing they do is? They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. They point people to Jesus. Not out of control with bizarrety and chaos, not something that would look like some crazy drunken pagan party, but they point to Christ. So he's saying, and keep it in the context, and it makes so much sense. Hey, be under control, be careful, know what God is doing, redeem the time, and be in control because you're pointing people to Christ. You're living for Christ. You're pointing people for Christ. God's using you in this mission to redeem the world. You've got to be sober-minded, and you've got to be led by the Spirit as you do this. You see the parallel here? So it's really important that we understand this then. Now, fortunately for us, we don't have to then guess exactly what that looks like. Because from this on out, Paul actually shows us a couple of distinguishing marks of someone who is filled by and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so he goes on, and number one is spirit-filled Christians worship. Spirit-filled Christians worship. Verse 19, addressing one another. We'll read it in context, actually. Verse 19 says this, or verse 18 and 19. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what's an interesting characteristic about drunk people? They sing. Don't they? Drunk people will sing. How many of you watch the Mayberry show when Otis comes in to check himself into jail every single time? What's he doing? I'm so sorry I broke your heart, mother. Going into the jail every time. Drunk people sing. Hey, listen to me. And especially this tends to be men and oftentimes men in the back. But listen, men. <laughs> hey, Christians sing. Get over it. Christians sing. Get over it. Well, I don't sing. You're a Christian. You sing. Man, there's a great, I wish I'd have got the video to show you guys, but Alistair Begg did this great thing at a lecture that I was at up at Western Seminary one time. And, and so we're in this room, this big group of pastors, and everybody's singing these hymns. And it's something, man, if you ever get to go to a pastor's conference or something, there's something so cool about the singing that takes place when you have a group of men just belting these hymns out and we had just this powerful worship time and Alistair Begg came up there and 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 a side note it was apart from anything he was actually teaching he said he said you know what man like you know how I know when someone's really been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ and when their life has really changed it's when they start to sing he said because American men in general are change danglers 
hands in the pocket, jingling the change. He said, in Europe, it's different. In Europe, in the pubs, in the soccer stadiums, what do they do? Have you ever watched a soccer game from Europe on TV? What are they doing? Singing. They're singing, and they're singing hymns. They're drunk out of their minds, but they're singing hymns, and they're rah, 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 all this kind of stuff. But when they get saved, they get changed. They come into the churches, and now they're singing differently. They're singing with intention. They're singing with worship. In America, it's a little different. But I can tell you, I've seen it with so many of you, and some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. Some of you first came in like this. You want to come to church in the first place. Church starts at 10. You do know football starts at 10, right? It's just stupid. And then you're kind of listening. A couple weeks later, you might have a Bible. Next thing you know, you're there, you're praying. But when the guy starts to sing, and even specifically, maybe it's just our culture, or maybe it's just me, but when the guy is singing like this, oh man. There's something different in the heart of a man that is willing to humble himself, lift his hands as scripture commands to the Lord, and sing. Christian, get over yourself. Well, it's embarrassing, and I can't sing, and people are watching. It ain't got nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with a God who delights in the praises of his people. Singing matters. In everything we do, think of the power of song. Movies without soundtracks would be so lacking in power and emotion and feeling. We are designed to be moved by song. And not just singing to one another, but there's also this element when it says about singing to one another that, that we're not just singing to elevate God, though that is the primary reason we sing. But second of all, there is something encouraging for one another when the body of Christ comes together and says we will worship God together. Is there not? Have you ever been changed in a song? Have you ever seen how a song can change a mood, can change an attitude? Christian, you sing. Start singing. I've always been gentle with this in the past. Sam, I'm doing you a favor, worship leader here. You sing. We sing to God and we put our pride aside knowing it is a sin when pride prevents us from singing and we worship God. Why? Because he's worth it. We will raise our hands and scream for our favorite team, but we'll do this for God? No. Christians sing. And this is a characteristic of a spirit-filled Christian. Now, I should, I should say something, though. I'm saying this as a command, and, and it is a command biblically, but Paul's actually not even doing that. What Paul's giving you is a rundown here of what you naturally will look like if you've been filled by the Spirit of God. So if you're being filled by the Spirit of God, you're going to sing. If you're not singing, you might want to check. Number two, Spirit-filled Christians are thankful Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people have a regular thankful heart. They understand that everything from time to money to the ability to sing to the ability to actually stand in a room with a church is a gift from God and we're thankful. We're thankful for everything. That takes intentionality as well. Sometimes you have to stop and think about what you're thankful for. That's, in other words, the fruit of the Spirit would put us in control so that we can stop and actually do this. 
And it's amazing how you can feel like nothing's going well till you stop and start thinking, what do I have to be thankful for? The list gets really long really quick if you're really honest with yourself. But he says here, you're thankful for everything. And you, you go, really? What about death? When a loved one dies, I'm supposed to be thankful for that? No, listen. In the Bible, Christ wept when people died. Weeping, sadness, and sorrow is an emotion that is also a common grace that's given to us. People who repress mourning go through really difficult things. Mourning in difficult situations is healthy. It's a common grace as well. However, remember the context. Paul's saying, don't live as someone who's not wise. Understand the big picture. Know what God's doing. Did you guys see the story just this week? Monty Williams, who's the assistant coach for the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, I think, NBA team. Did you guys see what happened? His wife was killed in an auto accident when someone who was driving way too fast hit her head on, and it killed, I think, both of them, if I'm not mistaken, but killed his wife. And he was at a funeral, and he was speaking, and it was unbelievable. He stood up there and he was talking. He was thanking people who've been praying for him. And all these people are here. His team's here. All these NBA players are there. And he says something. Please Google this. Like, you should watch this. But, but he says this. He says, you guys are all praying for me, and that's good. But there were two people involved in this. And we need to pray for both families. That other person didn't wake up that morning intending to kill my wife. And they're going through sorrow. And the dude preached the gospel and talked about his faith. And you want to, let me tell you how important that was. Understanding the big picture of what God is doing. Showing forgiveness to that family in that moment. Taking advantage of the time he had at that microphone, knowing the days are evil. This is what he did. And the next day on ESPN radio, there's a guy that I love to hear who is anything but a Christian. His name's Dan Lebetard. And Dan Lebetard's talking about this. And this is what Dan Lebetard said. He said, look, I don't care if you're the most, most atheistic person in the world, Bill Maher, any of those guys. I don't care how much of an atheist you are. If you watch that speech, you have to want that. What a testimony. He said, when you see the peace, the ability to forgive and speak with that kind of control and clarity, I don't care how much of an atheist you are. There's got to be something in you that says, but I wish I had that. Christian, that is taking advantage of the time, being led by the Spirit, and pointing people to Christ, being grateful for opportunities in every circumstance. Please go watch it. It is powerful. So we're not fake. He wasn't glad that his wife died by any stretch of the imagination, but he understood the big picture. And so he's grounded in a way that those who are unwise, who are foolish who don't understand the big picture of what God's doing are not. It's why the Bible says we don't weep as those who don't have hope because we know that we have hope. Amen. It's a powerful thing. And then the last one is this spirit filled Christians serve one another. He says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, believers who are filled by the spirit naturally and intentionally submit to one another and serve 
one another. There's a bad interpretation of this because what it goes from right into, and I haven't decided yet, I probably will not be teaching about the marriage passages coming up and it's not because I'm skipping it or because of the marriage conference coming up, but it's because Pastor Jeremy actually jumped ahead, if you guys remember, in the fall and taught from this and it was phenomenal and awesome, so please go back and listen. Um, But it goes into the wives submit to your husbands. And so here's a bad interpretation that people have taken from this. They've said, this isn't general submission. This doesn't mean that Christians just in general submit to one another. It's a specific submission based on authority. And so that's why Paul's next example is, wives, submit to your husbands. And so what people will take that to mean or to use it as is they'll go, therefore, church, submit to your elders, employees, submit to your boss, and all these things. Now, is there truth in that? Yes, of course there is. But... Just like we take common graces and end up abusing them, we make that thing the thing, we've done this with authority in many places. And so you have churches that will preach a submission to authority that's based on a hierarchical structure within the church. That's not biblical. Now, do we submit to leaders? Yes. But is everything strictly based on hierarchy? No. Every Christian is submitting to who? Every Christian. Think about it. When when Christ was teaching his apostles in Matthew chapter 20, we've got the text, who were angling for what? Authority and power. In the kingdom, can we sit one on this side and one on this side, Lord? Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? That's where we want, because those are positions of power and authority. They wanted power and authority, and what does Jesus teach them? Look at the text. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Read that with me. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Church leader, if you want people to follow, you want to be great and have power and authority in the kingdom of God, it does not look like HP or it does not look like a dictatorship. It does not look like the things that you look at in the world. It looks like an inverted pyramid where if you want to be great, you get lower than the other people around you in every situation. You submit, you serve. You love one another. It's amazing how these texts get used to control someone when the emphasis is on submission. Because we take the thing and we pollute the thing and we use it for our own good rather than understanding, letting it push through and point to Christ. Because this is what he tells us in the text, doesn't it? This is what he tells us. Hey, do this. Why? Because this is what Christ came to do for us. Christ came to serve us. That's why we serve others. I mean, look at Philippians, the classic one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the what? Spirit. If you are being led by the Spirit, what's it going to look like? Any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We serve. Christian, 
You serve others, specifically in the body of Christ and generally those that are outside the body. Christians serve one another. Why? He goes on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Note note specifically, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And yet we'll take that submission thing as a reason to grasp authority. Christ had all claims to all authority, but that's not what he was fighting for. He was fighting for you. And so he served you. So we serve one another. This is what the church is. If you are filled with the spirit of God, you're going to sing. What was number two? I already forgot. You're thankful. That's a bad, I'm not taking notes. That's why, right? And, And number three, this is what we do. We serve one another. We serve one another because the Spirit of God is changing us into the image of Christ. Therefore, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that you serve others. You humble yourself. You get low. It's, 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 Christianity is, it's, what is it called? Limbo? Is that what it is? No. Is it limbo? Is that the poll? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Christianity is limbo. There's your tweetable line, line right there from the whole service. Christianity, not in limbo, Christianity, it's get low. But in closing, there's something we should note. When he says it back in Ephesians in verse 21, he actually doesn't say in that moment, submit to one another so that you act as Christ did. He actually says something much heavier. He says what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that can be interpreted like, oh, no, you're honoring Christ in what you do. That's true, but reverence is actually a bad interpretation of that in the ESV. A, a better interpretation on that is fear. Out of fear of God. Now remember, what are we talking about overall? Living with what? Wisdom. And what does the scriptures tell us? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So there's another element to this, especially with regard to serving and how we honor one another. We've been hammering this home, have we not? Your identity is in Christ. You're a child of God. You're forgiven. You're adopted into the family of God. We talk about that and we can, if we're not careful, we only apply that to ourselves. And so we carry ourselves with dignity because we're a child of God. But if you're not careful, you can take the thing and make it bad. And now you're carrying yourself with dignity. I'm a child of God, but you're forgetting that so is that person next to you. The other people that are in the body of Christ, if they have their faith in Christ, they are also children of God. And so out of fear to God, we should probably honor his kids. Don't, man, there's a lot of things that you could do to me. There's a lot of things that you could do to me, but you do something to my kids and it's going to a whole new level, right? So we honor one another. I'll just be honest with you. I've met a lot of Christians I don't like. I've met a lot of Christians that I go, I do not want to spend time with that guy. None in here, of course. But I mean, I've met a lot, right? Have you not met Christians? Sometimes they just rub you a little wrong. That's good for you. That teaches, submission to someone you love is easy. 
Serving someone you don't love, that's the hard work of the gospel right there. I don't want to serve them, man. It's annoying. You mean they're not worth it? Yeah, I mean, they don't deserve it. That guy's such a jerk. I'm not going to serve him if he's such a jerk. Yeah, because that wouldn't be like Jesus, would it? Coming to serve you when you were not worthy. Where the Bible says none were seeking him, not one. And yet he would humble himself to serve a jerk like you. I don't like every Christian I meet. But by God's grace, I hope he can continue to change my heart so that I will still serve and honor and humble myself among other Christians. I'm not there yet, neither are you. But I'm so thankful that the spirit of God is working even when I feel like I'm resting. Aren't you glad that you're not done yet? Those of you that are farther down the line, when you look back, aren't you, aren't you thankful that God has been working in you? Do you see things in your life now that you're like, man, I'm glad that's not me. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's food addictions. Maybe it's sexual addictions. Who knows what it is, but aren't you glad when you start to look back and you can see what God's done in your life and you go, man, I have more, <coughs> excuse me, I have more joy now. I have more peace now. I understand the plan of God. I have more importance. My life matters more today than it did then because I am so much more aware of God in my life and how the Spirit's changed me. That's a good feeling. And if you allow the Spirit of God to have dominion over you, to control you and to lead you, one day you'll wake up and you'll be 60 and you won't regret a thing. You won't regret a thing. You'll be like, man, look what God has been doing in my life. I encourage you, and I don't care how old you are, if, if you're 85, if you're 90, don't quit. You're about to see him. If there was ever a time to press in, it's now. And for the rest of us, humble yourself before the Spirit of God. So I'm gonna ask you all to stand. Sam's gonna come up and close this in song, but I wanna talk to you for just a second as he does. Are you led by the Spirit of God? What controls you? When you leave today and decisions are coming your way, when you're making decisions from everything on how you're gonna spend your day to what you're gonna do with your life, what is the controlling influence in your life? Are you filled with the Spirit? The interesting thing about that text when he says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, it means continually. So you're like, yeah, I got filled with the Spirit. I got saved. I've been filled with the Spirit. No, he means again. Are you filled? It is like a gas tank. You're going to run out. Get some more. Fill up. His mercies and his grace are new every morning, and he desires to lead us every day. God is intensely practical, and he wants to be involved in every area of your life. Are you filled with the Spirit? I don't know. Do you sing? Do you worship? Do you find yourself desiring to love and serve others? Is this you? Are you thankful? Are you increasingly grateful for God's graces in your life? If, if, if not, if none of those things are evident in your life, you're, you're not. But God's mercy is new every morning, amen? And so right now, you have the opportunity, even as we worship, to say, Lord, just fill me again. So that sounds weird. It is. It's supernatural. 
It is outside of the natural world that we're a part of. But the reality is the Christian life is a spirit-empowered life. So I'm gonna encourage you all right now to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're with me in this, if this is what you desire, like, I, I want more of that. I want the Spirit of God to lead me. I want to invite the Spirit, of, Spirit in. Then you're gonna pray with me on this. God, we have so often just tried to fashion our own way, to chart our own waters, to plan our own lives. But God, I thank you for your gracious reminder in your word this morning that you have a plan for us and all eternity. That you're a loving and good father, but you are a sovereign king and Lord as well, Lord. And our desire is that we would be in line with your word and your plan. So Lord, we cannot do that of our own. We know this, that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so Lord, for myself and those that would even ask this morning, Lord, I pray, will you fill us anew with your Holy Spirit? Would you come upon us and empower us, Lord, to live a life glorifying to you that we might not waste one moment of this life on anything that is foolish, but that instead we might serve and love you. And Lord, for the, that part of us that is filled with fear, that that sounds tiring, that sounds exhausting, may we then be reminded that rest is found in you, Lord. So may you take over your people. May you lead your church. May we, as we pray to the beginning, humbly bow before our King, be filled with your Spirit, and be led by your Spirit in every area of our life. And so God, now as individuals, we pray that very thing to you as we sing.